Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In season six, our disease films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit, some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices, like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big. Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> we talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. This 
is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight in the show, the final in our Zhang Yimou series with his latest film, The Great Wall. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com and subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And friend of the show, Ben Lott, has written in with a blot spot, a rebound on our last Zhang Yimou film, Hero. He says, Hero is a stunningly beautiful film. I love the visual style and how Zhang Yimou utilizes unique colors to differentiate each act. This type of storytelling, where you keep going back and presenting events from a new point of view, is something I absolutely adore. I tend to have an aversion to foreign films, but Hero was a delightful treat that I'm anxious to watch again soon. Your rank 116, my rank 28. Wow. I didn't see that coming. It's a keeper. What was it that happened? I've already forgotten. How did it end up at 116? What did it lose to that dropped it to 116? Uh, Raise the Red Lantern. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. You had a little rock, paper, scissors lost there. Sorry about that. Hey, uh, friend of the show, Ocean caught up with us about a review of Coming to America and his criticism, apart from saying that we broke his soul a little bit with our review, was that he needed a clear definition of holding up for these movies that we revisit after many years when we say the movie didn't hold up. And we that was something that we said about Coming to America. And, uh, uh, you know, his comparison was to The Godfather. He says, you show that movie to someone who's never seen it and he contends it wouldn't hold up at all. Uh, and so a part of his constituent sort of element of it, of this definition was, you, had you gone through the period uh, and then watch it again, maybe it, it holds up better for you or something. How do, how do we define holding up, Andy? What do you think? You know, that's an interesting one. I, I guess it's a film that, that uh, lives on past its time and doesn't feel uh, kind of antiquated and, and stuck, uh, like dated. The reason that The Godfather, I think, shot so high on our chart is because it is a film that stands the test of time. I wasn't born when that film came out, but it's a film that I can very easily connect to whenever I watch it. Um, I, I would think that a person who watches The Godfather uh, any time is going to find a connection to it. But, you know, at the same time, I also do think, and we've talked about this with a number of films that we've watched uh, and talked about on the show, um, a lot of it boils down to when you see it. Um, you know, a film like Joe versus the Volcano that we both love may be only because we happen to see it at a key point in our lives where it just really connected, uh, you know, for us. Whereas uh, now, if somebody just picked that up and watched it, it might be something that they didn't think held up. So, you know, there's that line, I think. You know, it's interesting. The, the more I've been thinking about it after this conversation, uh, or after these conversations that you and I have had about, you know, what does it mean to have a movie hold up? I think one of the elements is that the cultural stylings and, and sort of the cultural um, the elements of the film you have to be able to take the story of the film and remove it from those cultural sort of uh, elements and see if it's still a good story. Yes. And that's that for me is the coming to America Godfather comparison. Like you could take the Godfather and put it in a different time and space uh, with the the same story and the same characters. Uh, but put it in, you know, 2126, and it's a, suddenly a future mob movie. And I, I contend it would still hold up. Like, it, it's a great story, first and foremost. It's a story about family. It's a story about... I think there is so much 80s culture in coming to America that 
it, that helps that movie to exist in that time and space, that if you take that out of that time and space, it doesn't hold up because it needs that culture to breathe. It's like unplugging it from the breathing machine, you know? It, it can't leave that time and stand on its own as a great story. What do you think? A fair start? I, I do think so. I think that definitely uh, is something that uh, can fit. It really boils down to just having a a solid story. And I mean, one of the weakest things about coming to America for me was the ending. It just really kind of fell apart at the end with uh, the way that everything resolved. Um, it was a very frustrating. That has nothing to do with the, that, that's just straight up storytelling, right? I mean, that's yeah. just straight up filmmaking. That has nothing to do with the, the 80s culture stuff. It doesn't, but I think that that's, that's yeah. the element that when you step outside of that 80s culture and you're watching it today, uh, now you're stuck with the story. And is that going to be able to hold yeah. up? So, Ocean, thanks for the comment, uh, man. I It's given me a lot to think about over these last couple of days, so I, I appreciate it. And I'm going to keep testing this theory when we say hold up. Yes, good uh, idea. I I have a feeling we're we we're we, we might be talking about it with this film uh, that we're seeing tonight at some point. Uh, so there you go, Andy. I think it's time. Let's do trailers. So my trailer, Pete, um, is for a film that played at Sundance this past uh, January and is now going to have a home on Netflix. It's called The Discovery. Have you heard of this little film? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I love the concept. It's a really interesting uh, kind of a sci-fi story. It's this. It's a, a story that is about, it's a, kind of a romance sci-fi. It looks like there's a, a hint of kind of some thriller uh, in there. It's a love story, Um with some of this thriller element thrown in, set a year after a scientist proves that the afterlife exists. And it's this period of time where all of a sudden, uh, you know, people are just all like <laughs> like killing themselves because, hey, I can go to heaven because uh, it's real. It's a real place. And uh, the son of this inventor ends up falling in love with this, this girl who's got this dark past. Um, and, uh, you know, the, you don't get a ton of that out of, out of the trailer. I kind of uh, read some, some more stuff about it, but, um, uh, but the trailer, man, it's just got such a great creepy vibe with that, that warbly record sound of Roy Orbison singing only the lonely. It's just, it's super creepy and it lends this air of, of just kind of this horror mystery sort of thing going on here with this this sci-fi future where all of a sudden, you know, people, hey, we're going to all kill ourselves because we can go straight to heaven or possibly hell. Who knows? But uh, I, I don't know. The concept is just so cool. I, I'm so excited to see this one. Uh, it's got Robert Redford as the scientist who discovers it and his son, um, Jason Siegel, And then Rooney Mara is who he falls in love with. There's also Riley Kia. And uh, Jesse Plemons. So it's a really interesting cast. Um, I'm kind of really excited. And I am glad it's going to be on Netflix because it'll be super easy to see. What do you think of this one? I'm I'm really rooting for this movie for a number of reasons, not the least of which is, is it's one of those movies like Primer that I think uh, takes a rule that we all sort of take for granted and then as a thought experiment breaks that rule to see kind of what would happen. And the idea that confirming that the afterlife exists 
suddenly breaks humanity is fascinating to me. I think it it, it is a, a really interesting story. I'm really rooting for Charlie McDowell. I love this guy, um, I, not the least of which because he directed two of my favorite episodes of Silicon Valley. Uh, Minor Sagan's Haversack, I think, is one of the funniest episodes that they did on that show, and, and <laughs> that was the first one he did. He also did uh, the, the one I love, uh, which was the, that was the, an, another kind of a strange uh, film with uh, Mark Duplass and Ted Danson and and uh, Elizabeth Moss and um, so I'm I'm really really interested in it. But the first thought I had, and I hadn't read up on on this film before you sent me the trailer, was wow Netflix, you are totally cornering the market on weird filmmaking right now. <laughs> anyway, I think they are really cornering the market on some adventurous dark stuff, and I'm I'm really enthusiastic about it. So. Uh, no, I think it's great. Yeah, I, I'm very much looking forward to it too. And I, I you know, I haven't seen uh, the the what was it, the one I love that movie you were just talking about that mm-hmm. uh, he had directed. It's been on my list of films to watch, so I've got to check that one out. Um, but yeah, this is uh, going to be coming out soon, March 31st. It'll be playing on Netflix, so check it out, everybody. What's what's your trailer? My trailer, Andy, is the <laughs> the house. <laughs> I'm I'm almost a little bit embarrassed that I picked this one, but I have to tell you, I really laughed at this trailer. I laughed for a number of reasons, mostly because you know when you when you see a movie that uh, you you see a comedy and the premise of the comedy is rooted in a fear that you so deeply share in your own life. Um, we are getting to that age as a family where my first child is less than four years from going away to college, and uh, that is becoming a Financial pre-stress. We're in the pre-stress stage, sort of alpha alpha stress. Uh, as we think about kind of what happens next, these years are flying by. And so then I watched this trailer, which is all about uh, Will Ferrell and Amy Poehler uh, sharing their excitement with uh, their daughter who gets into college. But of course, then they discover they can't pay for it. And it's about what they do, the lengths to which they will go to uh, figure out how to pay for college. I want this to be like old school. I want this to be so, so funny. And I deeply want it to be funnier than the trailer, which was already funny. I I don't want the trailer to be the be-all, end-all of funny in this movie. Mostly because Jason Mansukas is in it, and he is one of my very favorite comedians right now. The guy is just bizarre. And uh, I, I... really want to see him succeed uh, in this film. Uh, And uh, so uh, there you go. Uh, Written by Andrew J. Cohen uh, uh, and Brendan O'Brien, directed by uh, Cohen himself. Uh, As I said, Will Ferrell, Amy Poehler, Jason Matsukas, Ryan Simpkins plays the the daughter, Allison Tolman, Andrea Savage, uh, and others. What'd you think? Yeah. It's one, of, it's one of those I ones. I knew you were going to be well, all like that. Here's the thing. I mean, it's one of those trailers that I was watching. I'm like, oh, this is exactly yeah. what I expected it to be. Everything about it is so like exactly what you'd expect. I mean, it's, uh, you know, a gambling uh, den in their basement. It is old school but for pe- parents trying to raise a little extra money. So, I, I you know, I was like, okay, yeah, it's, it's pretty expected. But I got to say, the last bit of the trailer had me practically rolling on the floor (laughs) but he's like trying not to gag as he's threatening the guy after they accidentally chop his uh finger off 
Now you go downstairs and tell your friends what we're going to do. See? That, now that, that could bit, be the end of the funny, but that, I hope not. That made the whole trailer watching experience worth it. So for that, thank you. Aw. <laughs> Aw. I'm so glad to hear it. Starts rolling out uh, in Brazil June 29th. Uh, only have a couple of release dates. June 29th for Singapore, UK June 30th, US June 30th, Germany July, Philippines August 23rd. That's it so far, but I imagine it'll it'll get out there. Yeah. I fought for greed and gods. This is the first war I've seen worth fighting for. We have traveled thousands of miles in search of a weapon more powerful than we've ever known. Why are you here? We came to trade. You lie. You are thieves. What was that? There are many things you have not seen. The Great Wall. It's the only barrier keeping the world safe. The Great Wall, Andy. Zhang Yimou, written by Carlo Bernard, Doug Miro, and other people. Stars Matt Damon, Jing Tian, Pedro Pascal, Willem Dafoe, Andy Lau. What a guy. Zhang Han Yu and others uh, in this story. It is historical fiction. It tells a story of a Great Wall in a universe far, far away that was built for one reason, to keep out the lizard dragons, uh, the hordes that come from the Emerald Mountain to uh, take over China. What did you think of this film, Andy? You know, <laughs> this is it's like the strangest film to, to throw into Zhang Yimou's <laughs> catalog of films. <laughs> Um, I, it's just like, so not anything I expected to see kind of, I mean, he's done some of the Wuxia films we've talked about hero and he's done, uh, uh, what's the other one? House of the flying daggers. And he, and he makes gorgeous films. And, uh, I, I watched another film that he did, um, recently. It was, a, it was another film that was kind of a half Chinese, half English film that he did with Christian Bale a few years ago called the flowers of war. Um, which it's very much just kind of a historical uh, drama film. And it's interesting that this film, The Great Wall, is being billed as his first English language film because this has as much of a balance between English and uh, Chinese as The Flowers of War did. I think this is just kind of a bigger film, so they're pushing it that way. But it's a totally different type of film. And this one, I guess I went into this really not expecting much because the trailers looked pretty ludicrous with, you know, these monsters on the other side of the wall. It just kind of looked like silly nonsense. Um, but I have to say, I actually kind of had some fun watching the movie. I have some real issues with it, but at the same time, I did find myself enjoying it. So... <laughs> There you go. What do you think? You know, it's funny that you you sort of introduce your opinion with uh, this being a film that is that falls for you outside of what you expected from Zhang Yimou right now, um, because I walked out saying, "Wow, that's a Zhang Yimou film, right?" If you look at what he has done with the films that we've talked about, right? His use of color, his use of camera, his use of movement, his his uh, incredible sort of affinity with shooting large structures and scale. This film is like the pinnacle of everything we've talked about leading up to this. His use of giant casts, if anything, I mean, the 
like hundreds and thousands of extras that were non-CG, right? Uh, let alone uh, all of the the masses of CG players. Um, this this really, I think, represents sort of the next stop for him making a giant budget film. He is, uh, you know, watching the interview material around this thing uh, coming from China uh, is. You know, you see Zhang Yimou as a wildly celebrated cultural hero in that country right now. So this is a giant step for him making a, a movie of this size and this budget. And I think he he landed all of his jumps on, uh, you know, the things that I love the most about his filmmaking style, the visual style. I love the colors. I love the the flowing. I love the the wackiness of some of the stuff that he makes this fantasy army do. I, it was just bananas. Uh, I'm with you. I have a few problems with it. Uh, but I had a surprisingly good time at this movie. And, and yeah, I, I guess what I was saying was I wasn't expecting this to be a Zhang Yimou film. Like, I watched the trailers. It just seemed so uh, not what he would be doing. But after watching the film, I'm like, that is exactly what I would expect Zhang Yimou to do with this. It really did fit with the color and the design and the scope and just the way everything uh, falls into place. So I I really did enjoy it. But, um, yeah, there there definitely are a few little issues. My biggest issue... The film sets up this whole idea how there are real stories about why this 1,700-mile wall was built in China, and there are legends about why this wall was built. This is one of the legends. I loved that setup. It's like, you know, we're going to have fun with this. Don't expect anything real here. This is just a, a fantasy about a story that people have made up about why the Great Wall is here. It's like they they buy filmmaking credibility with the audience totally. by doing that. I, I loved that. Because I, the trailers, to your point, were bad. They were terrible, terrible trailers. That sets it up nicely. But even with that, I still had a hard time buying the legend about, okay, this meteor crashed into the uh, this mountain and it ter- made the mountain green for some reason. But then they build the 1,700-mile wall to protect them from these dragons that come out from only this one mountain that they can see right up a valley so they can see everything coming out of it and coming toward them. It's like, why did they have to build this huge wall if this is the only spot that these creatures seem to attack the wall? That was like the one thing that I was just like, well, I don't really... That was your problem? That was just one of my (laughs) problems. But it's just like, it, it, it... it doesn't give me a reason to believe that they had to build a, this wall across half the country just to defend from this one mountain. Why didn't they build a wall around the mountain? <laughs> <laughs> okay. We just got finished saying that the setup in the beginning buys credibility. No. And the the central point, the, the central <laughs> anchor about which you need to extend this credibility, you have problems with. I know. It's, it's it's a fantasy. I I get it. I just I wish that the dragons were attacking other sure spots of the do. wall too. <laughs> they only attack this one spot. It's like okay, at the beginning we set this up where it's like it's like Lord of the Rings or Return of the King. They've got the smokestacks on the mountains, you know, telling people that they're coming. Here we've got oh the smoke's coming down the chain of of all the different towers along the Great Wall. But, like, I didn't understand why, because it's like, but the mountain's right there, up the valley. Why are they coming? Like, it, it, some of that was nonsensical. But, you know, it is a big dragon. I would I would <laughs> submit that, that we don't know. I mean, there is a chance that there were other, like, giant sort of onyx 
tunnels of rage coming down from the mountain that we couldn't see. That's possible. And they they tell us that these dragons are getting smarter. They could be spreading out and attacking at different points. It's just never it's Because never the dragons by the, by the climax of the movie, by the end of the movie, there are more dragons than we had seen prior. Yes, and they are clearly smart because they did find a way to tunnel under the under the wall to get to uh, the capital. Very smart. Although to your point, that tunnel was not very big. To my point, there must be other tunnels. <laughs> I love this. This is just like uh, just a bananas conversation about a bananas film. It, it is, it's a bananas. But let me, I, I got to step back. So I, 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 I've been thinking about, cause I saw it on Friday and so I've had, but we're, as we're recording this, it's, it's now Monday. And so I've had a couple of days to think about it. You just saw it yesterday. Is that right? Correct. Okay. And, and so I don't know, I, maybe I've been stewing on it for too long, longer than the film deserves, but, uh, these interviews that I've been watching with these, with particularly the Chinese actors, Andy Lau, uh, you know, says, uh, said that, you know, Tao Te, which is what they call these monsters, it is a symbol of greed, right? And so when you see these waves of Tao Te, these monsters hammering against the Great Wall, it's, it, is, it is fighting back the greed with the will and the wall of humanity, right? And so it becomes much more uh, of, a, um, uh, of a story of kind of cultural imposition. And I think that makes the movie even better when you look at it through the the lens of of metaphor. Yeah. No, what do you think? Do you buy I, it? I I think it's an interesting way to look at it. I uh you know, I struggle with thinking that there was a lot of metaphor here, but again, it's like Zhang Yimou. I I really did feel like the whole concept really comes from Commander Lin and this idea of, you know, the Chinese people are uh, are a people who work together. It's all about that, you know, mm-hmm. that that one land, you know, that that idea that we talked about with Hero. It's like these are this is uh, people who group together to fight together to be together as one. And to that end, maybe you're right. Well, and greed becomes its own form of cultural imperialism, right? Infecting uh, and imposing itself on the will of, of um, the the sort of honest working class, right? The the people who who work together, share the load, the communal aspects and politics. And I think it's it it tells an interesting story. So I find it actually more interesting <laughs> thinking about that, uh, and coupled with Yimou's uh, incredible visuals, I. You know, I I struggled a little bit because at some point I wanted to compare this to the Fifth Element on the Great Wall. Um, at at what point would the visuals have been overboard for you? Because I know you weren't as crazy about that as I was. Uh, the visuals. Did anything in the in the Cirque du Soleilness of the army, the flamboyance of the army, get under your skin? No, t- I loved all of that. I thought it was just it was beautiful. I mean that that really showed a lot of what Zhang Yimou brought to this, right? Yeah. I mean, it really was about yeah. um, just this these different groups within the army that all were kind of trained with a very specific purpose. And they all, it's like color coding. So it was, it was easy to easy to get. Okay, so the, the soldiers in the black are the foot soldiers. The soldiers in blue are the, <laughs> totally. I don't remember what they called them, the crane the crane troop or whatever, the skydiver. Yeah, the, the ones, crane troopers, right. Bungee That's, girls. Yeah. Uh, and the uh, the yellow ones were the archers, and they all had their own little color coding, and I loved that. It was like my first military. Like, <laughs> you cannot get lost. Exactly. This is oh, a, you're like, purple. You know exactly where you're going. <laughs> right. Exactly. It was fantastic. Yeah. 
I was that yeah. to that end. I was disappointed that the guy who uh, kept getting picked on didn't get his colors taken away when he had to go work in the kitchen. You know, <laughs> it's like no, you're the, <laughs> the kitchen, kitchen color. Just... You're dirt. You're dirty brown now. <laughs> I know, but what's so great is that he he had to actually wear his colors in the kitchen and his helmet. Like right, I know. He had to, like completely do all the kitchen stuff for the entire army, as far as I could tell. Like there was nobody else in the kitchen with him. Right, it's just him. So on the script, and and back to this point about the trailer, because we both kind of poo-pooed the trailer a little bit. And and I think the risk of the trailer was the way they handled Matt Damon. And and maybe that was because, you know, we were watching a, a U.S. domestic release. I don't know. I, I haven't watched all of the international trailers yet. But, um, you know, part of it was what kind of movie is this going to be? I think the script, the uh, screenplay by Carlo Bernard, Doug Miro, and Tony Gilroy, a uh, story by Max Brooks, uh, Edward Zwick, and Marshall Hershkovitz, uh, I actually think the story makes much more sense than the trailer deserved. I think that the story makes total sense. I mean, it was a very easy to understand story. I, you know, I don't know. I I wonder if they tried to find a way to sell the trailer or to, just to sell the concept to uh, to dumb Americans so that, you know, people could understand it in a lowest common denominator sort of thing. But <laughs> uh, it, I don't know, it just ended up feeling... Um, like it didn't sell the story as well as it as it should have. You know, it made it much more focused on kind of the mystery of what's out there and all that. And and you know, it it hit. It, it really did try to emphasize some of that kind of the uh, the you know the the buddy buddy adventure sort of story between uh, uh, Matt Damon's character and uh, his buddy Tovar, uh, paid by, played by uh, uh, was it Pedro Pascal. That got played up in the trailer quite a bit, and you know, to a certain extent, I think that was kind of one of the weaker elements of the film. You know, but I mean, I I still enjoyed their chemistry, I guess. But I just I I felt like I wanted a little more of the story in the trailers. But yeah, and and the story was actually more interesting. I mean, the whole uh, conceit that this army this that is you know fighting off the the Taute is the sole you know possessor of gunpowder and that's what gets our uh, intrepid duo to the great wall in the first place you know they're running from the mongol hordes and they end up trapped at the base of this uh, of of one of the bastions of the great wall uh, i think it was a that was a fine intro for me like it, it took me into the story well and that was the thing i was most concerned about was they're not going to be able to introduce this story they're not going to be able to shoehorn matt damon into this story in a way that makes sense at all, and I think they actually did that. They they shoe shoehorned him in well. Is that what you're saying? I am. I actually I'm going to stick with that. I yeah. I think they. Gonna... Well, here's the thing. I mean, because because there has been controversy from just the trailer, which we all know how ridiculous it is to start judging something based on a trailer, let alone even a teaser. And actually, the criticism really kicked off with the teaser. Um, when it first came out, about uh, oh, they're whitewashing history again. And uh, Matt Damon kind of took him to task um, because these people were like, uh, I think it was at a, a press conference back at the New York Comic Con right after the first teaser came out about how the film was being labeled as offensive for the white savior stereotyping. And he's just like, you know, it wasn't, you know, wait until you see the movie. You guys are, yeah. are judging this based on this teaser and you don't have a sense of what the story is. 
And uh, Pedro Pascal kind of joked, he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, we're all guilty of whitewashing. We all know only the Chinese were the ones who defended the wall against the monsters. Uh, so it's like, uh, it's it's this kind of this silliness of the whole idea of, of the whitewashing, um, at least judging something as being whitewashing when you haven't even seen it. And I think when you watch the film, it's like, you know, here is this guy. I mean, okay, sure. He's the one who really kind of has the character arc over the course of the story, right? He starts as this this kind of, he and his buddy, they're thieves, they're, they're, they build themselves as traitors, but really they're trying to find this black powder so they can kind of steal it and uh, take it back and no, sell it for a fortune. Yeah, they're totally mercenaries. Yeah. And he's, like he says, he's fought for many flags, right? He goes through the list. He doesn't care who he's fighting for as long as he's getting money out of it. I mean, that's really what he's all about. But something changes within him here as he starts working with Commander Lin, and she kind of teaches him this whole concept of trust. And and he says, I don't trust anybody except myself. But we see that change over the course of the film, and and they start working with each other. Um, so he gets that um, that character arc, and t- to a certain extent, that kind of makes him our protagonist. Um, but what I what I think is important is that it's not just his film. It really is a, a film of teamwork, and you have all of this group working together, and he and Commander Lin work together at the end to help bring the uh, the queen down. Um, he's got a couple tries that doesn't work, and then the two of them together, they devise a plan where they will... Uh, you know, come up with something to help destroy her. And I thought that was great. I thought that was nice seeing that, you know, here here he is, Matt Damon, this big American actor in this uh, this multicultural Zhang Yimou film, potentially uh, taking it over as the white hero. But we here we are, you know, getting to see him working with the people in the story and, and uh, you know, this commander who, you know, is also a woman, as they work together to actually defeat the uh, these dragons. And I thought that was great. And so I think it is something that uh, is unfair to judge it being uh, just a whitewashing of, of this story. I think it's, if anything to me, it ended up speaking to the kind of the multicultural nature of how films are really going to start being, or maybe should start being, as... Um, uh, the distributors really start trying to tap into these big markets like the Chinese market, which is just a huge, huge uh, market right now. And there's a lot of funding coming out of there. We've already heard all the stories about how there are scenes shot for all these Marvel films that are only ever seen in the Chinese markets that we'll never get to see unless we go over there to watch it. Um, I think it's a hugely critical um, element of these of this new storytelling as as all of this global money starts coming together and, and gluing these films together. And if you watch the credits of this film, I mean, it's not just Chinese um, people and and uh, filmmakers and storytellers and Americans. I mean, there were people um, in effects shops in India and France and uh, and in Asia, like all over the world. It really was a multicultural film. And so uh, to that end, I thought they did a great job of of bringing it all together. I think we may be giving it a hard time because of the size of Matt Damon's face on the poster. Uh, (laughs) It's really big. It's a really big face. Yes, it is. Uh, But, you know, how many times have have you said, I know I have, where I watch a great film, a great foreign film, a great Chinese film, and I think, man, what would this person do? 
uh, if they had a Hollywood budget. Well, now we're going to start seeing that, right? We're seeing that more and more and more. We're seeing that certainly on display in this film. This is about as uh, you know much a testament to the future of production uh, of, of these big budget films as I think we've yet seen uh, and, and actually maintains, I think, uh, Yimou's uh, artistry. That that's the thing I think that I'm I'm most impressed by with this film. That I walked away really seeing Zheng Yimou in this film, and I'm not sure I can say uh, that about the uh, maybe with with uh, uh, not Civil War, but Winter Soldier. Um, uh, those the Russo films had kind of a stamp on them, uh, but the Marvel movies that are big kind of multicultural productions end up being Marvel movies, right? They they t- go to great pains to sort of disguise the the uh, uh, artistry beyond the mechanics. And this film, I I felt like I was in a Zhang Yimou film. I felt like I was seeing what this guy wanted to put on screen, and uh, every bit as much as we saw it in Hero and as we saw it in uh, Raise the Red Lantern. And judo. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. It really does have his stamp. And I mean, he is a, a filmmaker with an incredible, incredibly strong stamp. I mean, we've talked about the costumes and how gorgeous they were. But man, mm-hmm. that tower, when they go into the tower, that's all the stained glass windows all the way up. And you just have like that that rainbow of light cutting across oh. the screen. I mean, that was one of the most stunning things to look at. And I mean, I went and saw IMAX 3D uh, because why not? It was Zhang Yimou. I, you know, I wanted to see him on as yeah. big a uh, screen as possible. And that was just, I mean, it was mind-bogglingly beautiful. And to, and that you know, that really struck me as this is definitely a Zhang Yimou moment here when we get this tower just laced with the most beautiful um, light coming in from, uh, from its uh, stained glass. It was just stunning. So... It's well, gorgeous. there you go, and and the pair with that. I mean, the the trip they take to that tower, the the rainbow tunnel where the the Taute start reaching through the light in the ceiling and pulling people up, and then they go. I mean, talk about and what a perfect example of his ability to handle length and height, right? I mean, it's something we have we've seen him do uh, so well in in all of the recent films that we have watched, and this movie they just it, it added such a. Uh, richness and resonance on this giant screen. Uh, I I was really impressed. Actually, one one last note that I wanted to say about that that I think is mm-hmm. is definitely worth talking about in context of um, this kind of shift that potentially that we'll be making. Um, I really did like that it wasn't just everybody speaking in English. The fact that there was logic behind the language all through the film just totally sold me on it. I mean, there was a lot of Chinese being spoken with subtitles. There was a lot of English. Some of the Chinese characters spoke English, and there was a reason for it. I really Mm -hmm. respected that they found a way to kind of tie all that together. And uh, that, you know, sometimes you see these, these films that take place. I mean, this very easily could have been done with everybody speaking English just with accents. And they didn't do that, and I give them a lot of kudos for that. You know, I actually thought about that. There's a place when there is a part in the film where they're eating dinner and they're bringing, they bring, you know, Matt Damon and and uh, um, Pedro. Pedro out, and they uh, there's a part where they're all speaking Chinese, and you and Damon says, "What do you say?" And I thought, man, now I feel like I'm there. Yeah, like that. That's what it would be like. Like I would be saying that all the time, and uh, um, it. it I, I totally agree with you. I think it's perfect. Uh, let's let's move into first shot, last shot. 
Okay, the first shot of the film from the the opening logos of the uh, of the distribution companies, we have the logo logo for Legendary Pictures over a globe, and then we drop down from that globe onto China, and we see the Great Wall, and we get a few other shots um, followed uh, following of the wall, paired with some on screen text about the true stories, why the wall was created, as well as the legends. And the last shot, uh, now we are moving away from the wall. William and Tovar ride away with their escort. Uh, General Lin is uh, standing alone on the wildly curving wall, watching them ride into the distance. Yeah, they sure didn't they, uh, they sure didn't make this a straight wall. It was really <laughs> no. like, man, where which way is this wall going? <laughs> yeah. I think the only the, the you know, the story for me is really this is the this is the the intro and outro to a fable and and I think it it works well on that front. You know, we we kind of move in, you almost feel the pages opening to a book. Uh, and as they ride away at the end of the film, uh, you feel the story sort of come to an end. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. It, 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 I mean, it's called The Great Wall. This is a story about um, what is behind the wall that we have to defend ourselves from and the people defending it. And so we get that. And I should have said at the very first shot, you know, we get these various shots of the wall. And the very last shot we get before the title, it's a close-up of the wall as something from the other side, like, hits the wall and the wall kind of cracks and, and kind of starts to crumble as then the camera flies in through the crack and we get the title. So... Kind of a, just a sense of you know where our story is and the legends about it. So, well, and and that's a really good point. Uh, one of the things I wanted to say early on, I I totally spaced was that they get us into a major battle really fast in this film, right? I mean, they get Matt Damon and uh, Pedro to the wall fairly quickly, and then we see the hordes. Like they don't, there there is no suspense about what these things look like or what they're going to do or how they communicate. They educate us onto the the sort of world of the Taute uh, very very quickly and efficiently for a for a film like this. Let's go into the cast. Casting by John Papsidera and Victoria Thomas, uh, and they uh, they landed Mr. Matt Damon as William Guerin. What do you think of of Matt the Wandering Scott, ish? <laughs> the Wandering something. You know. I enjoyed him in the film. I thought he carried the character well. I think, if anything, it, you know, I, I was a little frustrated initially with his uh, dialect. I could never quite pinpoint what it was. And I couldn't, it, it also had kind of a stilted uh, read to it. And I wasn't sure if that's because of the way that the script was written and translated or, or whatever it was, or if that's just kind of his choice as as an actor to kind of play it that way. Um but I got used to it. And as the film wore on, I was like, okay, I'm kind of used to this this way that he's speaking all the time. It was it was very strange, but in the end it didn't bother me. But it did take some getting used to. But I, I this is the the part I had sort of the most trouble with, I think, in the film. And and I am a huge fan of Matt Damon. The challenge that I have with his accent is it didn't it never really landed. Yeah. You know, it never really stuck. Uh, from sequence to sequence, it was heaviest in the very beginning of the film, and it was always subtle. And But in the beginning of the film, I actually liked it. I found myself sort of thinking about it. I mean, it comes off as sort of a, a thick-necked kind of, uh, like, it's it's coming from deep in his, in, in his 
chest, you know, is he's he's really put it low in his throat, and I think it it sounded great, and it never really stuck throughout the the uh, course of the film. It would weave in and out of of his sequences, and that was frustrating, and and I I found it distracting. Uh, in otherwise, uh, I think the the performance was fine. I bought him as the archer. I thought he was a uh, he. I, I've always thought you know Matt Damon is a fantastic physical actor, and uh, he is as we've talked about before. He's enormously charismatic on screen. And it was better than the last Bourne movie. So, you know, I call it a win. <laughs> yes, I would say so. That's a, that's a good point. That was a pretty bad film. It's an interesting accent. Um, I'm curious to see how it holds up over time. Yeah, talk about holding up. If you don't have the wall, Andy, if you take Matt Damon out of the wall, will the accent hold up? <laughs> Jing Tian is commander of uh, Lin Mei of the Crane Troop. Talk a little bit about what her job was in the film. Will you, can you describe it? Well, her job, she's the commander of the, uh, what are they called again? The crane troop? The, the, the crane, crane troop. Crane yeah. soldiers. Um, they uh, they dress in blue. <laughs> and they, very, very bright. And they put uh, strap themselves into uh, basically like rope bungee cords. And they. I want you to imagine yeah, going fly fishing. Uh, right. They <laughs> hurl themselves off the wall and slash at the dragons, only to get yanked back up again. Hopefully, not eaten while they're down at the bottom. Um, <laughs> crazy. Um, but so, so so stupid. I, it's it was nutty. so stupid and so beautiful. Like Absolutely. I I am in such favor. <laughs> of this element of the film, even though I heartily acknowledge it is ridiculous. Oh, it, it is. is ridiculous. Well, and it's funny because I mean they these guys have so many variations on ways to attack these dragons. They have to be really careful which ones they use at the same time. Because I mean, thank goodness they didn't, you know, use the little knife, the giant knives that they the have scissors. the scissors on the sides of the walls that like cut the dragons in <laughs> half when the women were out there on their ropes, because that would have just been a disaster. So obviously they've got some uh, very specific rules about what's going on at the same time. They always make sure the red shirts are talking to the blue shirts, Andy. Exactly. That's the that's the point. Uh-huh. I uh, I thought she was terrific. She is. Uh, I, I thought the whole cadre of um, of women in this role, and they're all they're all women, incredibly acrobatic women, and apparently they they were recruited from the the um, uh, Shaolin Temple, um, according to. Damon in, in one of his interviews, a lot of these these incredibly physical sort of um, performances came straight out of the temple, and uh, they were gorgeous to watch on screen. It was crazy. I thought she was great. I thought her English was great. I thought she was a great. She she served well as sort of a strong uh, commander. I I actually I mean I bought it, and she is very petite. I think this would have been a really easy role to to not be able to to kind of sink your teeth into as an audience member. And I, I thought she did a fantastic job. Oh, yeah, I loved her. I, I thought she was a great leader, too. I, I liked that aspect that she really kind of takes over and, uh, you know, from commander and after the general gets killed, kind of steps up and, and starts leading. Um, she was a perfect choice. I thought she had the sensibilities. And the conversations that she had with uh, William 
over the course of the film about trust and about working together and all of that, I thought that was a nice pairing and how they were, you know, they were the same type. No, they weren't the same type, all of that sort of stuff. Really interesting. And I liked that uh, character balance between these two. I thought she was a great choice for this. And I'm excited to see her in uh, in Kong Skull Island coming out soon. Pedro Pascal uh, is plays the uh, Pedro Tovar. He's the buddy. I haven't seen him in, uh, I don't think I've seen anything that he's been in. Um, I mean, he's been doing a lot of TV. He's been kind of all over the place. And he was with uh, Matt Damon back in the Adjustment Bureau. Um, um, But I, yeah, I mean, man, he's one of those guys who's kind of just escaped my my field of view. Um, But uh, yeah, Narcos, I mean, that's definitely a big one for him. Um, so I enjoyed him in this. I, you know, as somebody who has, I'm kind of familiar with him as an actor, but I just hadn't seen him in anything. I enjoyed him as a, as a character in this. I wish that I liked the relationship between him and William a little better, but I still enjoyed him. I, uh, I'm big fan of Oberyn Martell on Game of Thrones, and uh, I, I think he's fantastic. Ooh, ooh, tough. I need to Tough watch. Role. I I haven't quite caught up to to that bit, so I'm yeah. I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be uh, the next round of Game of Thrones for me. So I'm looking forward. Yeah, to Yeah, you you got some catching up to do. It is it's worth it. He's he's worth catching, and he's very. I mean, in this film, he actually looks really really like a physical presence, and and it's in in Game of Thrones, it's the opposite. Like he is wiry and lithe and strong, but not big. And it's important that he's not big because it, you know, his seven episodes on the show lead up to something where he needs to look like a, a shadow uh, against a mountain, so to speak. Oh, Andy, I can't believe we can't talk about this. Anyway, I've read the book. Uh, I've actually, read the book. I know. I know what. Oh, I know right. Who okay, he is. you know. I guess. All right. <laughs> Anyway, he's great. I I am right with you, and that is one of the central kind of problems I have with the film uh, beyond William's accent never really sticking is that their friendship, um, it, and I know it's not really a friendship, it's a partnership, it's a thing that kind of weaves in and out of relevance to the film uh, and to their journey together, and it it is the other thing in the film that never really locks for me. I, I'm... I I either go from wondering what the next plot point is that relates to them as a duo to not caring at all and forgetting that he was in the film. Like there's a period where he's just gone for a while and I didn't notice. It's that's the biggest problem. And um, I, I, I mean, I think they set it up in an interesting way where this is a guy who they're kind of friends, but at the same time, he's also willing to just ditch his friend to get off, make off with the uh, black powder along with Well, Willem and Defoe. they're friends by necessity, right? Yeah, right because right. they're the two that lived in the group. Like, yeah, there's right. no other reason for them to be hanging out. Exactly. But then uh, then we get to the end, and I think this is one, one of my biggest frustrations with the film, is like, they go riding off together. It's like, I, I just, I, I never bought that friendship enough for Matt Damon to make the choice to go riding off with Tovar. It seemed to me that if any choice was going to be made, he would make the choice to stay and fight. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe Tovar would leave, maybe Tovar would stay. But for me, it's like William was in a place where he's like, you know, I'm going to stay and I'm going to fight and I'm going to be a part of this, uh, this uh, community now. That to me would have made a more logical ending, and it it just like mm-hmm. it it seemed like they were trying to satisfy some like buddy comedy sort of ending by having the two of them right off together. So that was for me the biggest one of the biggest moments of frustration for me. 
I, I agree with you. And they, I, I, to your point, I think they could have gone with the Seven Samurai ending, and it would have been great. Separate, separate the duo uh, makes their relationship in hindsight that much stronger. Anyhow, it, Willem Dafoe. I was actually surprised to see Willem Dafoe in this film. I don't think I caught that he was even in it in the trailer. Well, he's pretty clearly in the trailer, but you probably just were so taken by the dragons and and everything else that you forgot. But, and Matt uh, Damon's giant head. And Matt Damon's giant head. Uh, but, you know, I mean, he's very Willem Dafoe. You know, I, yep. I think he was uh, fine. I think I had more of a sense that uh, he was more of a a positive character from the trailer. And it was actually, uh, it was kind of a relief to see that he really wasn't. <laughs> he was just a scoundrel. Uh, more interesting to me was Andy Lau as Wang, strategist and war counselor for the Nameless Order. Uh, I actually really, I mean, I, I've always loved Andy Lau, uh, but uh, it's really cool to see him in such a, a, a role of a stoic. Yeah, I mean, he was, uh, I, I'm trying to remember, in Infernal Affairs, which cop was he again? Was he, Or was he the the bad guy posing as the cop, or was he the cop posing as the bad guy? I see when you put it that way. Who's to know? <laughs> I, I think he's, he was the cop posing yes, as the bad guy. I, I think he was. He was the hero character. Yes, he's the one who gets killed by the... The, yeah, uh, the the bad guy posing as a cop. Um, right. I, uh, I I really enjoyed him in that film. I enjoy him. I mean, he's just it's just such a great presence to watch, and I think he's great here. I mean, he'd he'd worked with um, uh, Yamu on a couple other films, House of Flying Daggers. Uh, I, it might have just been that film. And then we talked about uh, when we we're talking about Gong Li, how she was in the Chinese uh, adaptation of What Women Want. He was the guy in that film with her. So uh, there you go. Andy Lau and Gong Li. It seems like a great pairing. So there are, I mean, this cast, those are the the sort of the big five. Uh, this cast is full of really strong performances from a bunch of people that we haven't seen enough movies of. Uh, but I imagine we're going to see some of them again. So uh, in, in that regard, in terms of the mechanics of this military, uh, these, uh, this was, this was a well-cast film. Uh, let's talk a little bit about getting it made briefly. Yeah. I mean, this was a, a film that uh, came out of legendary pictures. Um, uh, the producing team kind of put it together. It's an interesting, I mean, we mentioned the writers, but we didn't really talk much about it as far as the fact that Max Brooks, Edward Zwick, Marshall Herskovitz were the people who came up with the story. And then, uh, Carlo Bernard, Doug Miro and Tony Gilroy wrote the screenplay. None of them Chinese. Uh, I thought that was very interesting that uh, that that was kind of the direction of this, which to a certain extent made it feel very much like Zhang Yimou was um, kind of a, a director for hire. And reading about it and really kind of looking at what they were really pushing for here, I mean, uh, Legendary Pictures has a, a Chinese joint venture, Legendary East, and what that division is really trying to do is focus on some big budget um, Sino U.S. co-productions with subjects that are based on the Chinese history, mythology, culture, all that sort of stuff. And so this is kind of a lead into that. And they are really kind of banking on this um, being successful. And it's it's kind of a big gamble. And um, I, I think it's going to succeed. So far, it looks like it's succeeding um, over there. I don't know if it's going to succeed as well over here. You know, Zhang Yimou, I mean, here he is, this, this incredible filmmaker. I mean, he's done a lot of really great stuff. Um, but he hasn't had a hit. I mean, we didn't really talk about this, but Hero was a huge hit for him. Um, House of Flying Daggers came out right after that. That was another huge hit. Um, 
everything else between has just not done as well. I mean, he's had some some films that have been really uh, successful as far as critics are concerned, but none of them have made quite as much money as some of those other big films. And so this is really something that he's like, you know, he could use this big hit right now. Um, and I think what happened is these guys were really trying to find a way to get all of these pieces to line up in such a way as to create this big uh, action spectacle bridging uh, the Chinese community and the American community and, uh, you know, cross their fingers and hope it works. Um, we'll see. This is going to be a time will tell sort of thing because it's so fresh in theaters right now. The cinematography was uh, uh, performed by Stuart Dryberg and Zhao Xiaoding. Zhao Xiaoding is behind, actually, House of Flying Daggers, and, you know, maybe that is that shows just sort of how uh, adept uh, he is at, at working with Yao Ming. Uh, Stuart Dryberg is behind Secret Life of Walter Mitty. I absolutely adore the camera in that movie. How do they split the work on a film like this? You know, I don't know. I need to... Um, I didn't look at um, uh, the American... Uh uh, cinematographer magazine often has some really great articles with cinematographers, uh, you know, interviews and stuff like that. I didn't have a chance to look at their magazine to see if they had anything about this particular film talking about how stuff was split up. But um, I was curious about that too, because I saw that it had two uh, cinematographers credited and they each had their own screen. So I wasn't sure if they, uh, if they weren't working together, but they both had very specific elements. Uh, you know, I wasn't quite sure. So yeah. it's, it's one of those weird things that I'd love to know a little bit more about the, uh, the, how that's structured. Yeah, it's interesting too when you look at at some of the work that they've that each of these uh, folks have done. I mean, they actually, you know, when I, I compare them to the work of of um, Zheng Yimou, they have a style that that very much fits within his vision, right? I mean, they they are very strong. Uh, have a very strong sort of visual style, uh, and and even movies that we we ultimately did not like at all had a very visual style. Uh, Stuart Dryberg's behind Black Hat, for example, and and so um, I I think that's uh, at least worth considering. I mean, maybe this was. Uh, I, I would love to hear more about the partnership between these three people. Yeah, I'm curious. I mean, maybe one uh, dealt more with the action uh, side of things. One more dealt with more of the uh, the smaller moments, something like that. I'm not exactly sure, but it, it does uh, uh, pique my curiosity. Yeah. You know, speaking of the Production. cinematography, I did just want to say I really enjoyed the uh, the bit in the fog. I thought that was uh, really beautiful. Um, it you know, speaking of the the color that Zhang Yimou always has. Um, when we're shooting in fog, you don't get that. It's just kind of this blanket of white over everything, and it really kind of uh, obscures so much. But I loved the way they dealt with it, and I loved the way they, they dealt with the whistles in to, to create the sounds and everything. But uh, just the look of it, and when, they, when uh, uh, William slides down on the chain and he's down there trying to get that, uh, that dragon dragged in, and you just it's it's just such an obscured world. And I thought the cinematography in that particular scene just that really struck out for me. Yeah, it was really haunting. The other one for me it was the the release of the the lanterns, mm, uh, which yeah. I thought worked on it in on a number of levels. First, it was a beautiful ceremonial thing, you know. I mean, it was the the death of their leader, and that every soldier on the wall released one of these um, floating 
candles into the sky, the, the thousands of them kind of um, perforating that night sky in the, the path of the wall, I thought was just gorgeous. But also, speaking of the narrative, that the ultimate sort of climax <laughs> takes place from one of these balloons, uh, I, I didn't see that coming in terms of, you know, we're literally hanging a lantern on this. Uh, it, it, that, that the final element is a giant, you know, floating balloon I thought was, was a nice touch. Absolutely. John Meyer is uh, behind the production design, uh, which, uh, was, uh, I, I, fantastic. Well, and just speaking to the balloons that you were just talking about, I mean, yeah. <laughs> they were pretty stellar to see, uh, these giant floating balloons and, what was so great about it is that they weren't uh, completely effective and they weren't tested and you had a lot of deaths from them, but they did it yeah. anyway. But that was all a part of the brilliant production design. You know, they didn't have baskets or anything. It was just these these platforms laced with um, extra uh, black powder so they could, uh, you know, have weapons and keep the balloons afloat. Um, uh, so I loved the design element of it that also went into it and uh, why so many of them ended up burning and exploding. Uh, it's just it's, <laughs> terrible. I, I, it's absolutely horrible. But I think you know production design uh, just beautiful on a film like this. And you know for a film that's called The Great Wall, it could very very easily just have become a, you know we're we're surrounded by gray bricks all the time. Uh, but in Jang Yimou's world, when he's working with uh, his production designer, they do a lot of great things. And then looking at the costumes that um, uh, I was at Maya C Rubio does i mean this this has to get nominated for best uh costume uh come next year and i certainly uh, would at this point say that it's going to win because these costumes are just just amazing i just the ornateness of them i mean just absolutely beautiful yeah really stunning the, the thing i've been thinking about since i saw the movie uh, that i really wanted to close the loop on this with you uh was the cg arrows <laughs> and, and now we have CG arrows, we have CG cannonballs, fireballs, spiked fireballs, flaming fire cannonballs. We have CG uh, narcotic-laced uh, uh, anchors uh-huh. flying through the air. How did the CG projectiles hold up for you, particularly in the IMAX 3D viewing experience? I, you know, I thought about that when I was seeing them, and they were all slow-mo and everything. I was like, I really... <laughs> It's like Jackie Moon was doing it just for me. Check it out. Yeah. Look, no, look we're the in progress I made. Yeah, look at look at my ears. I'm gonna put you in the arrows. Then I'm gonna put you in the flame trail of the cannonballs, <laughs> and I'm gonna put you in the, uh, on the chain with the narcotic anchor. And you're gonna love every minute of it, in, Andy Nelson. Slow mo, absolutely. He did it just yeah. for me, and I actually really enjoyed it. And I even really enjoyed the dragons. I saw some test uh, footage of the dragons beforehand. I was like, oh, these are gonna be pretty ridiculous. It's gonna look terrible. But they actually had a really unique look. And I mean, they were weird enough. Like they have their eyes and their shoulders. It just was kind of nonsensical. That was crazy. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I'm like, you know what? But it makes it different enough for me. So when I'm watching, it it kind of throws me off a little bit. And and I appreciated that because it actually, um, they had something different about them. And so in context of, of all of that, I, I thought they did a really unique thing with these creatures. And not to mention the really cool communication uh, method that they have, kind of that, uh, you know, I know it's not quite telecommunication, but, you know, whatever the little radio communication that they're doing. I thought it was really cool. Christian Schroyer is behind the, um, it was the conceptual creature designer of the film. And I, I thought it was really great uh, when you look at the, at, at the creatures when they're not moving, you see that they, they have built into them the um, many of the 
beautiful sort of Chinese uh, sort of art treatments, right? The the symbolic treatments. You have the kind of maze on the right. heads of the the kind of troops and the the designs that are actually built in to the skulls and the shapes of the heads, which I thought was a great throwback to Chinese art of the period. You know, I mean, I think it it when you go to these temples and you see these these sort of gargoyle creatures, they all look like that. They've been recreated. Uh, as as sort of um, uh, maquettes or, or homage to um, you know what an artist rendering of these animals, and this is an animal, a rendering of an animal, uh, based on the art, which I thought was was delightfully recursive. I, I loved that too. Yeah, it was such a unique design for the creatures, um, and Weta I think did a lot of the actual uh, design work on the creatures, Andrew Baker and the whole Weta team. I really kind of just love them. I liked the little hierarchy that they had, you know, the masses of the uh, the the soldier dragons and then you had the kind of the giant muscly ones with the uh, mm-hmm. the the um, frill like the frill neck uh, lizard almost sorts of things that would protect the queen and then the queen in the middle of all that. It was such a such an interesting design and Again, we always go back to world building. This was a really interesting, uh, uh, you know, a lot of details put into this and certainly something that Zhang Yimou has done very consistently in all of his films. Uh, editing, Mary Jo Markey and Craig Wood. Um, I, I thought it was well cut and well paced. I didn't really have any problems with it. Yeah, it, it yeah, moved It moved nicely. It wasn't too long. It wasn't too short. It just uh, moved nicely. I mean, they've been doing quite a bit of uh, big projects like, oh, you know, Star Trek Into Darkness, Star Wars The Force Awakens. Um, so I think that they have a good sense of, of cutting films in a way that's going to move them along. Uh, you know, geez, I mean, looking at that was, uh, uh, that was Mary Jo Markey. But then looking at Craig Wood, it's things like Guardians of the Galaxy and Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, so, yeah, they definitely are uh, a pair that know how to cut action films together. And finally, your favorite, Raman Djawadi, did the music. Yeah, you know, he's he's a composer that I find so interesting. And sometimes um, I don't think much of his music, but uh, every now and then he does some really interesting stuff. I love his uh, work on Game of Thrones. And... Um, I just think he does some really nice stuff here. It actually seems to fit nicely. It has some of the the Tandun sort of uh, the the tones and everything that we got before. A lot of the pounding drums, um, but some choral stuff. I mean, it just it was a really effective score. I really liked it. What'd you think? Oh, I thought it was fantastic. And I, you know, you look at the the last four major properties that he's been involved in. I'm a fan of every bit of the scores that he's done for those. The Strain, Westworld, Game of Thrones. And you know what? I, I haven't even heard any of it yet, but he's on Prison Break, the sequel, uh, which is coming out. I was I actually watched every bit of that show when it was when it was still on. So uh, I actually really like it. He's he is uh, uh, I think he's an incredibly talented uh, composer and this film was no exception. Strong theme, something I found myself, um, I, I found myself sort of wailing as I left the theater. Yeah, the numbers are interesting, and I'm curious in this. When you look at how it's done, just in this last opening weekend in the U.S., it's been open for a long time, right? In in China, when you see this, or, or I guess in in other places around the world, when you see this sort of a film. How do you set expectations for what you want opening weekend to look like? 
in a film that has been so stunningly successful elsewhere already. Well, like I was saying, I think that the producers at Legendary are really trying to find a way to uh, make some crossover films that are going to be really successful in China, but will also be really successful over here. That's, I think, the goal that they're working toward. Are they going to hit that with this film? I don't know. I think that the trailers were uh, so poorly done um, that, I mean, honestly, the film looked laughable um, when I saw the trailers. It just looked like just complete nonsense. Um, Watching the film, though, I found it to be so much more enjoyable. And I just don't know if many people are going to give it the chance to actually go and enjoy it. Um, It did cost uh, this this huge action spectacular. Ended up costing, from what I found, about $150 million to make. It's it's Zhang Yimou's most expensive film to date. And it's the biggest Hollywood China co-production ever. Like you said, it did open in China back in mid-December, December 15th, 2016. It's had a very slow expansion around the world before finally opening here in the U.S. Uh, just uh, for us recording just this past uh, Friday, February 17th, 2017, opposite Fist Fight and Cure for Wellness. It did open really strong in China, where its box office receipts accounted for about 80% of the foreign gross. Since the movie just opened here, we'll have to just keep updating our spreadsheet with info after its theatrical run ends. But for now, it looks like it's had a fairly weak opening at the box office, unfortunately, with only about $22 million coming in at number three behind Lego Batman and Fifty Shades Darker. Um, we're, like I said, recording it right after opening weekend. So that's all we have for now. But uh, if you just look at this information... Even without factoring in the rest of its domestic run, it at least has made its money back. So uh, I, I don't know what they spend on prints and advertising. Um, that may be hurting it. But for now, I'd say, you know what? They're they're making their money back at least. Maybe it's going to give them a chance to try it out again. See if they can find one that's going to create a better a financial uh, profit on both sides of the globe. I can't believe your tone and your voice is you're it's it's like you're in Andy Buzzkill mode and the movie's like over 200 million worldwide right now and like that we are even having a conversation where that kind of box office receipt is at all depressing is stunning to me. Well, and it's funny. I just I just read through that, and I didn't actually say how much it has made overseas, which is kind of funny. I skipped all of that. I just said that you know it's made for about eighty percent of its foreign gross. Over in right. uh, over in China, but yeah, I mean, it has made uh, almost. Uh, it's it's about two hundred forty five million internationally. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you're right. I I am just saying in context of those people who are really kind of banking on it succeeding on both sides. Um, I think they're doing really well over on that side of the globe. I think that it's they're struggling over on this side. So if you just look at the domestic box office, I think that it's a disappointment. But you're right. When you look at the international uh, figures, when a film is is you know on on uh, at least at this point, it's made you know about 267 million dollars worldwide. It's a success. So uh, yeah, I, it's one of those you know there's uh, there's good and bad. I think there is there's good and bad. Just like there is good and bad over at flickchart.com. I think it's time for us to rank it. Oh, let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. That's where you're going to find our profile. You can also just swipe over to the show notes in your podcast app of choice. Uh, and as we record this, Overcast 3 was released. That is my podcast app of choice. So, uh, plug to Overcast 3. It's really delightful. Uh, and so, uh, you swipe over to the show notes. You can tap on flickchart and, uh, 
And, and you can see, uh, it'll take you right to this movie through the magic of internet. And you can add it to your collection. And then let's see how well it stacks up. I'm really curious about this. Well, uh, we'll see how it goes. It's going to be a tough start because we first up, we have The Great Wall versus Joe versus the Volcano. <laughs> going back to our conversation about holding up over time, I'm yeah. still picking Joe versus the Volcano. I will too. I feel bad about it. I, I think, uh, but I'd watch Joe first. Uh, I know. Hands down. Absolutely. The Great Wall or The Host? Bong Great Joon-ho. Wall. Yeah, I really, yeah, I guess I will too. I mean, I'm surprised you will though. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I had a good time at this movie. I feel like I may be, uh, or in, in this case, we may be an island. Uh, it, it doesn't look like it's getting all that great a press, and uh, I'm, I'm disappointed about that because I think it's an entertaining romp. But I did like it, and I think that's that's reflective of my choices here. Absolutely. The Great Wall or What's Up, Doc? Oh, I'm The Great Wall. Yeah, I'm going to say The Great Wall. The Great Wall or The Night of the Hunter? I'm going with The Night of the Hunter. Me too. The Great Wall or Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? I'm going with Indy. I think I'm going with Indy as well. Even though that's oft maligned, <laughs> I'm still picking it. Yeah. Uh, the Great Wall or Outland? I'm going with Outland, please. I might go with the Great Wall here. Like it's, how strong? It's awfully, awfully uh, fun to watch. A lot of really interesting visuals. I think I'm going to enjoy watching any of the fight sequences of the Great Wall. Um, over and over and over again. And I mean, I certainly enjoyed Outland. I'm really glad to have discovered that film because I had not seen it before. But um, but I think that The Great Wall is just going to be a more, um, uh, something I can return to more often just to enjoy the visual feast of it. But you know, Andy, Sean Connery's accent doesn't waver. <laughs> not, even, not even a little bit. True. And he's really from Scotland. <laughs> Wow, for that, I feel like I should give it to you. I think you should. I will. All right. (laughs) (laughs) How's that? The Great Waller Field of Dreams. Totally Field of Dreams for me. Uh, Andy, uh, I'm all about reciprocity today. You can have it. (laughs) Old 2x4 gets the nod. 2x4 over Helm's Deep with Dragons. Oh, here we go. There you go. All right, here we got some Andy Lau uh, uh, face-off here. The Great Waller Infernal Affairs. Oh, dear. I had some issues with the uh, the uh, the shrink character in Infernal Affairs, but I still think I'm going to pick that film. I'm I, yeah, I'm going to pick that film. Uh, the Great Wall or the original The Magnificent Seven. The original Magnificent Seven, please. <sighs> I may go The Great Wall, but I'm pretty wishy-washy about this decision. Are you pretty strong Why? on Magnificent Seven? Uh, I would I would I, think, I would go with Magnificent yeah. Seven just for the music. I'd probably go with the Great Wall just for the fight scenes. I'm a little torn. I mean Magnificent Seven has I you know, some of the characters I don't like as much. I certainly would pick Seven Samurai over Great Wall, but here I'm a little I'm kind of leaning toward Great Wall just for the funness of it. Okay, now remind me, what are the characters that you don't like in Magnificent Seven? Uh, the the young one, the the kind of the German uh actor who plays the young one who does the little bullfight thing and uh, yeah. you know and, and stays behind to be with the girl and you know, kind of the the positive happy ending and stuff uh, that sort of stuff I just didn't you know it wasn't as crazy about you know they do the same thing in this movie I know positive they, happy ending I and what they do I know they do but you don't have women jumping off of the wall on uh, you're right bait 
the bait patrol. Yes. I'll give it to you for that. <laughs> you go, Shaolin ladies. All right. Well, that puts the Great Wall at 181 on our chart. Probably the lowest of our series, but it still is an awfully fun one, and it's uh, in good company. So there you go. It, it is fun. It's silly. I mean, it, there is a lot of silly if you go into it too seriously, I think. I... I enjoy it. I enjoy what it represents. Again, if you look at it as metaphor, I have a a good time with it. I think I like it more after spending so much time talking about Zhang Yimou. Uh, I really wonder if this film would represent quite as well had we seen it cold. That's a a good point. If somebody who has never seen a Zhang Yimou film goes into this cold and watches it, are they going to uh, think that it holds up? (laughs) <laughs> so yeah so what you need to do is go watch judo and uh the uh, other one raise the red lantern uh-huh. and and hero. Uh, hero and then listen to all of us all conversations on them <laughs> so they're your investment you're about it to nine ten hours I mean, to 11 hours and <laughs> then you can go see this movie so homework and uh, then we'll see what see what you think you know they've already watched it and they've listened to this by the time gotten to this point Pete. see you didn't even know it but you've already failed listener dear listener <laughs> you have failed yourself uh, andy uh what does this do for your letterbox rating ranking over at uh letterbox.com slash the next room i am giving this one a three and a half is there any andy love involved in that no i think that uh, i think that's got plenty of andy love already <laughs> already uh, yeah got the stink the stink <laughs> of andy love is all over this movie i will give you i i was coming in at three stars i thought it was just kind of a middle of the road better than two and a half but uh, i'm gonna I, I will agree with you for arithmetic's sake <laughs> at three and a half stars and uh, it'll be pete's star of andy love Oh, look at that. Yeah, there you go. Look at that. Uh, now, we've got some, some uh, schedule shakeup going on right now, right? But where does where do we go after this series, now that we've wrapped up our, our Zhang Yimou series? Well, we are going to be, uh, before we get into our Hughes Brothers uh, series, which is our next series, we actually have our next Listener's Choice episode, which is going to be uh, with uh, At Feg Feet from our, uh, our Pony Prize winner uh, from... Uh, from 2016. So this will be an exciting one, and we're going to be talking about the immigrants, not the immigrants, the emigrants. I've, I've written that wrong almost every time. <laughs> That's not the six and a half hour one, right? It is. Uh, it is. If you watch the second film in the series with it, we're only watching the first of the two films. <laughs> I think. I think Finn uh, wanted us to watch both of them, but I think. For our sake, I think we just picked the one, and then maybe we'll watch the second one as a as a you know one off down the road. Okay, all right, fair enough. Uh, well, between now and then, it sounds like I better rest up, Andy. So I'm I'm gonna go to bed. Well, there's a lot of dead dragons out there, so I'm gonna get the grill going. Time for a feast of Tao Te steaks. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. 
what what star rate is a new film so there there aren't as many amazon reviews to choose from uh so so what star rating did you end up with i ended up with a five a five andy well i you know well one the the only one star is incredibly long so i figured i'd skip it and okay. two, I was just like, you know, it might be fun to to see somebody who's really enjoyed this film and just hear from them. All right. Uh, well, mine's mine's short, and I'm going to get it out of the way. Do you mind? Go for it. All right. So mine is a three-star, and it's titled, Another, quote, Kill the Alien Queen movie to save the world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Not another Kill the Queen movie. First, it was Ender's Game, then the remake of Independence Day, and now this. This is the third recent movie where the plot is to kill the queen of alien creatures. Views more like a video game made into a movie. The third, Andy. The third kill the queen. That's if you don't count the, uh, like, aliens. All the kill the queen movies. Yeah, it it seems like they're skipping a lot. (laughs) The first Independence Day. <laughs> Technically, it did say recent movies. I buy that. But I, maybe there's a collection of Kill the Queen movies that we need to put together. Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> I've got a five star by Susie Q who says, don't be fooled. You will enjoy this movie. I went in with an open mind. All I wanted for the movie to do is keep me entertained. It is fantasy. So that should be the end of the discussion of Monsters. You won't care why they're fighting. Just remember, the critics missed the point. Oh. So there you go. Somebody who loves it, they want the monster. So there you go. It is. It's a monster movie. Don't go in thinking this is a historical drama. Don't go in thinking this is a Matt Damon vehicle. <laughs> this, is a, this is a monster movie. And if you're okay with that, you might have fun. There How about that? I like it. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.